You're listening to the Monica Cade Podcast, a conscious approach to all things health and lifestyle, empowering you to be your best self in each moment. Because the truth is, that's all we ever have. From conscious lifestyle tips that'll help you make better choices in all areas of your life, through to interviews with game-changing entrepreneurs, creative minds, and thought leaders. These conversations move me. They're changing the world, and I hope they impact yours. So, without further ado, let's dive into this week's conversation. Hello, and welcome to the Monica Cade podcast. You're listening to episode 105. Today, I'm joined by Linda Monique, the CEO and founder of Almo, Australia's most premium, 100% grown and made long-life almond milk. Before establishing Almo, Linda has lived many lives. She studied commerce and arts at the University of Melbourne. She's lived in Milan and London through an exchange program, lectured in food design and dabbled in being a private chef for a number of A-list celebrities. She's also been on MasterChef, a TED speaker, and won the 2018 Telstra Young Business Awards. Then in 2015, her autoimmune condition became a priority and she had to focus making drastic changes to her lifestyle. To strengthen her immune system, Linda began consuming plant-based milks and then realized that every product on the market was full of additives. And this is the beginning of the Almo story. So let's welcome her to the conversation. Hi, Linda. How are you? I'm very well. I thought we could start off our conversation by talking a little bit about your career path because I do love that about your story because you've had a colourful career and I feel like you've explored lots of different avenues and, and I guess aspects of yourself. So what made you decide that you wanted to study commerce and arts? That's a really good question. I had actually thought of many different careers in my life, but I think commerce really was just projects at university that would allow you to explore Um, or let's say a degree that would allow you to explore many different subjects, as was the arts. Mm -hmm. So dabbling with French, a bit of marketing, um, general accounting, those subjects really did give me a really good actually what I wanted to do um, in future in regards to what I did like doing, what I didn't like. And then so tell me a little bit about how this exchange program came about because that was pretty exciting. Yeah, so I had spent five years at university, um, double degree. It's it's a bit of a marathon. (laughs) I really wanted to break up that time and explore the world. So I thought, what better excuse? Might as well jump on a plane, do an exchange program. And many universities across Australia do offer incredible um, exchange opportunities. And Milan just seemed like the place to go to. Um, They had a focus on design. And given my university didn't focus on design subjects, either in business or the arts, it would rate opportunity to explore, A, what is design? B, how can I combine that with business? And uh, C, let me explore an aspect of design that I was really curious about. Which ended up being? Food. So uh, Luigi Bocconi Business School, it's such an incredible university and uh, my lecturers allowed me to do a blog on any aspect of design and that uh, was probably the start of this exploration of what food and business and design combined can mean. Um, And that's everything from consumer behaviour, of how we eat, culture, traditions, looking at food security and um, looking at food trends in general. 
So did you initially have a innate love of food to begin with? I have always loved eating and <laughs> just a curious person at heart where I would sit in a restaurant and if I love something or in a cafe, I would figure out well, how do they make that coffee taste soup so good or um, what do they put in that dish and how do they make it? And I think I'd always want to figure out what made it so special or if I just generally loved being in a restaurant or a certain environment. I would analyze and go, why is it so special? Is it the tables? Is it the atmosphere? Is it the food? Is it the branding? What what is it that makes a place um, so cool and trendy? So I would start just asking questions and a lot of questions. Oh, that sounds cool. I totally appreciate for myself, like if I go out for dinner or something, I'm a big I don't know if this is going to sound funny or not, but I always pay attention to glasses. Like I love a really good glass. So, you know, if, if you go somewhere and they have a beautiful glass, I just love that. And then, you know, especially nowadays, well, I don't know if it's just nowadays, but it seems like when it comes to food design, there's such more of, I guess, an industry around it. And, you know, people really do want to make the food that we eat look so beautiful. And sometimes the food that you get is so beautiful that you're just like, I don't want to eat this because it just looks so beautiful, you know? Yes, and how that can trigger emotions and different responses and, you know, it could be something as far as a childhood memory that can yeah. really trigger us. Um, but how we create a connection to the food we eat, the food we consume, the places we go to eat food, I think really important to understand um, because that can actually have a opportunity for new products, new opportunities, as well as bettering what we do. How did you get into being a private chef? So that's a great question. Again, um, I love cooking in general. And after that 2018 stint in Milan, I came back to Australia and I thought, couldn't really explore my love of cooking. Um, funnily enough, I was actually on MasterChef season one, Giggle, 21, really young. knew I loved cooking, but I didn't necessarily want to open up a restaurant that's labour-intensive. Generally, when you're at that age, you're spending six years as an apprentice. But I realised in Europe there was just um, an opportunity to become a private chef actually wasn't me wanting to become a private chef it mm -hmm. was just an opportunity at the time where I was working as a private assistant um, for someone in in the UK and just by chance they needed some lunch and they were desperate so I jumped in the kitchen and I started cooking that just became a standard and a norm so I was mixing both business and cooking at the same time and um, I guess just my natural love of home cooking, it was really, really easy to, to sort of fall into that role. So my focus on health as well, I think um, healthy eating, you can get a lot of chefs that have worked years in restaurants, but don't necessarily understand dietary needs. And mm -hmm. like dietitians as well, dietitians don't necessarily know how to translate nutritional needs into specific foods and um, lifestyles of, of, of very, um, very stressed out people and very on demand and time for. 
Yeah. So then tell me, are you one of those people in the kitchen that likes to follow a recipe or are you very intuitive and creative? I'm absolutely intuitive. Um, recipes I very rarely look at unless it's, um, let's say, a cake that really does need specific measurements. Yeah. I am free wing baller. I don't know what <laughs> Look into your fridge and tell you exactly what I see and I can tell you at least 30 or 40 dishes I can make for you depending if you want something healthy, something indulgent. I think it's almost like looking at all the ingredients and going, oh, that could be a French dish, that could be a Middle Eastern dish, we could do this, this, this. Yeah, I think there used to be a TV show in Australia where there was a guy that would literally stalk people in supermarkets, look at what was in their basket and make a dish out of what was in their basket and what was in their fridge. So, um, yeah, I think that's my special knack. That is so cool. I, I'd like to say that I'm pretty good in that sense like if I only have a few ingredients I can make something really good but when you're saying like 30 to 40 different recipes I was like hang on a second this is next level I was just thinking of what's in my fridge what would I do <laughs> yeah. like should you go quickly run Monica to your fridge right now <laughs> okay folks here we are <laughs> here's my fridge uh it's funny like there's heaps of vegetables in there at the moment Anyway, I feel like I'm getting off track, but <laughs> I will today when I go to my fridge, I will uh, have a look and I'll see, see what ideas I have. I might email you a couple of them <laughs> rather than my traditional, you know, strain of thought. Sounds great. <laughs> All right. So then you were living in London. Did you, was that the time when you had to come back due to your autoimmune disease? Okay, so yes. how, how did you know, how did you get diagnosed with that to begin with? So I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis. Um, so it's an inflammatory bowel disease or an autoimmune disease. Um, I was diagnosed when I was 15. Um, mm -hmm. It was actually after having a really bad stint um, in hospital after taking a drug for my skin called Roaccutane. Oh, yeah. um, I know a lot of people do take it so they don't get acne. Me, but one of the side effects that was known to the company that wasn't disclosed on packaging was that it can cause both Crohn's or colitis. Um, and when I was diagnosed, um, I was just feeling generally ill, running to the bathroom. It was pretty horrible. Um, but every year it got worse and worse. But being a 19-year-old, being a 17-year-old, I sort of was quite ignorant. I was like, oh, I can manage this. I'll just keep living my life. And when it knocks me down, I'll just get back up and keep doing the things that I wanted to do. Um, and that included, obviously, uh, escaping to London and working overseas. And at the time, I was doing everything that I could possibly think of to stay healthy, um, managing my diet, my stress, my sleeping, not drinking alcohol, um, but every year I seem to get worse and worse. And um, unfortunately, after some travel vaccinations, it completely triggered my immune system. So I found myself really, really ill and I had to make a call within 48 hours whether or not to stay or to jump on a plane to back to Melbourne from London. 
Um, and that was a really hard period of my um, life because I was leaving behind uh, my boyfriend and my boss at the time, um, a job that I really enjoyed and living a free life in Europe. So for me, my whole life came crashing down in that moment. It was my mid, like, let's say quarter life crisis as a 25 year old. I just turned 25 and I was in hospital back in Melbourne, um, facing the possibility of having my guts removed, um, wow. not being able to have children, um, not being able to work, um, losing so much weight and blood and just being so ill that life really just um, stopped for me. And, um, and that's where I had to figure out what was the next step for me. And I think it took me a good 12 months of just finding my feet again. Um, but even so, I still was quite sick and kept getting sick. So my health wasn't stable, which meant that the chances of going back to Europe were so slim um, that I just had to really make peace with the fact that I was back in Melbourne. Um, definitely not a, a country where you've got private chefing roles or design roles or lots of different uh, design festivals. So I found myself really questioning my career and what I was doing and what I wanted to do. Yeah, I can imagine that's something huge, not to mention when you're feeling unhealthy, naturally you don't have that same kind of tenacity or the inspiration, you know, and then to uh, come home to somewhere that you don't really want to be and you don't you're not surrounded by that the life that you had built I imagine that would have been really challenging yes and I think that a lot of expats when they go over to London they sort of either come back on their own terms or they come back obviously because their visas have expired um, but it is a challenge a coming back to a place obviously we think the grass is greener um, on the other side but just generally was a real struggle to find something that um, seemed meaningful. And I thought it was just such a waste of my career to let go of, but health was stopping me from going back into corporate roles or going back into the world of chefing. And I found myself in a really, really challenging position. And I guess that's where um, being bed bound, I thought, well, if I start my own business um, and I start my own company, I can at least work from hospital. I think that was my mindset at the time. Um, and that reporting just to myself really um, meant that I could ease that pressure. And so that's where Elmo sort of came about where I did always find food trends emerging in Australia. And I, I saw almond milk as one big one coming from the US and I thought this is an opportunity and sometimes timing is everything so feeling sorry for myself realizing that starting my own business was a good idea and uh, thinking that was going to be a way out and almond milk I thought Let, let's just do it I think that was probably the best the best step forward. During this time you were consuming plant-based milks and obviously you saw on the ingredients list that they're full of crap, most of them. And so then what was your process around that? Like was it that that kind of triggered the, hey, I want to start an almond milk or was it more that you were just exploring the market and seeing kind of what product you could come up with? I think it was um, a mixture of curiosity, a mixture of business analytical mindset training where 
um, I thought, okay, great. Uh, almond milk's a massive trend in the US. Let's see if there's any in the supermarket. And then supermarkets, I saw, oh, they're all um, US brands or they're using US almonds. Hang on a second, we grow almonds here in Australia. Why isn't there an Australian almond milk? And, and then looking at market positioning going, well, they're all really cheap and they're full of a ton of additives. We just need a really clean almond milk for the cafe market. And so that's where Elmo started. It's like, it's simple. It's just creating a premium, long life almond milk for the coffee market. Just how simple could that be? <laughs> um, and then I started on this massive journey of 12 months, couldn't find a manufacturer in Australia, wanted to give up, went back to London for three months just to, to private chef, just to keep me afloat, came back um, and thought had to pivot. So instead of focusing on a almond milk solely for the cafe market, um, based on packaging and the costs, we ended up um, producing a product for the retail market. We're still selling into a lot of cafes. Um, so there was a lot of changes and yeah, it wasn't as simple. It looked simple on paper um, and just doing my due diligence, I think was right. Um, let's just tick all the boxes of um, a basic business analysis. Is there an opportunity? Is it easy to produce? What are your advantages? Whether that was working with Australian almond growers and being first to market and produce an Australian grown almond milk. So there were there was a lot of thought behind it. And obviously I had a lot of time when I was in bed. I, I just had time to think about it really well. But um, yeah, I guess Elmo's been ticking along. It's come to four, almost four years now. So it's been a long journey um, and it's just amazing to see where an idea and a point in your life where it can take you. Mm. What's been the most challenging, whether at the beginning or, you know, in the last four years, what would you say is like the most challenging thing about bringing a product to market? Um, something that I underestimated completely was the level of aggressiveness by not only national players and um, okay. big companies with big budgets that could really hit the market quickly, but it was also international players. And I think that's something that's changed in recent years. Mm-hmm. Um, we are seeing more and more international companies and global companies play very aggressively in this market space. So leading almond milks now in the cafe market are full of additives, but they're using US almonds um, owned by US companies and um, our supermarkets are now being dominated by international players. So um, there is very little um, room for small businesses unless you have big dollar budgets or can think creatively and think about different opportunities to, to stay relevant and stay in the market and stay in the game ultimately. That sounds really challenging. So how then have you navigated that? You don't have to give away all your secrets. Was that discouraging at first? Because that to me seems like huge and I guess unless you're obviously in this and you love this because otherwise you still wouldn't be here. Yeah, how did you navigate that? Really, really tricky question. Sometimes I'm like, why am I doing this? Like, how do we win? Um, And it's exhausting. And every time you see a new market player enter the market and produce an almond milk, it's a big, um, you know, sometimes I feel, I won't say defeated, but certainly flat. Mm. And my partner um, and boyfriend just remind me that 
um, actually the really big difference between all these international conglomerates and these big players is they're big players and I'm just me. I'm, I'm one girl with really bad guts that understands quality and understands the need for cleaner products. And certainly I've used that to my advantage in saying that, well, maybe there is more people in Australia like me that can see through um, pretty marketing and pretty packaging and realize actually what they're drinking and actually look at the ingredients and go, should I be drinking that? Is an almond milk with 12 different ingredients, sugars, vegetable gums, actually healthy for me or is a cleaner alternative better? And, And I think... Australians are quite savvy and smart and so I'm seeing more and more growth and I think that's been my greatest asset in the sense that um, our company stands for um, quality, it stands for simplicity and a lot of companies out there probably don't have that authenticity about them. Certainly built up our following and our sales based on our consumers. And those consumers are those that need our almond milk the most. Um, We export a lot as well. Fortunately, a lot of the Asian markets value our quality or Australian-made and grown products more than Australians sometimes do themselves. Sad to say, pretty much 35% of all sales is now export to countries like Hong Kong, um, Malaysia, Singapore, Dubai, and that continues to grow. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. And I, I wonder, I agree with you. I think Australians are very savvy and especially people that have intolerances or, you know, that they have to drink or consume foods for their particular condition. I also think that there's not a lot of education around what goes into products because often you think, well, if it's on the shelf, it's good for me. Or, you know, the different marketing buzzwords at that particular time, for example, like gluten-free or sugar-free, you know, but it's such a broad category, but then you don't look at what's been substituted because of that. And I guess what I like that about what you're saying is that really just look at how many ingredients there are and if there's, you know, I think I was, I was reading somewhere, if it's under five or something, like that's kind of a safe bet. Yeah. And that's so true. Um, we're also very time poor. And when we make decisions in supermarkets, sometimes based off front of packaging or looking at the price of a product, assuming that both are pretty similar in quality. Mm. And um, so we have a lot of decisions to make as consumers. Um, and I think it may come down to consumers that have been impacted by health so much or that do value health that will spend that extra bit of time looking at what's in their products. The biggest challenge for us is when we look at the cafe market, for example, you will never question your barista as to what dairy milk they're using, what almond milk they're using. Assuming it tastes good, you're trusting your barista or you're trusting a chef at the back of a restaurant to be putting in healthy ingredients into a product that you think is healthy for you. Um, And funnily enough, that's not the case. Uh, Sometimes baristas just assume 
uh, their customers want a product with 12 ingredients and sugars because it tastes good and they like the taste of it. Um, and they assume that um, because everyone's drinking it, it must be good. So we've got a mindset that we need to change. And I guess a lot of media and a lot of marketing and social media, um, it's hard to cut through what is truth and what is actually good for us. So for our listeners, if they're going, oh, I like almond milk and I'm now going to go check what my almond milk contains, what do you want them to know about your brand? Um, Something that really stands out for us is we're one of the only 100% owned, made and grown almond milks in Australia. Um, We have a 5% almond content. might not sound like a lot, but it's actually one of the highest in Australia. You've got to disregard things like activated almond milks and actually compare almond milk on protein content because when you see a $2 almond milk with 10% activated almonds, I guarantee you there is not 10% almond content Uh but more of a diluted almond that's been soaked and thrown out. Um, So there's a lot of consumer awareness that needs to happen around that. But something to always look out for is... um, Focus on not choosing almond milks with sugar contents or vegetable oils labelled as sunflower lecithin or something called um, carrageenan, which is gum 407. It's particularly harmful for those with autoimmune conditions or digestive disorders. Um, And it's found in some of the leading barista almond milks and also leading almond milks sold on supermarket shelves. So just being a little bit savvy, um, absolutely. But if they want to choose something that's really local and high quality, um, then definitely choose Elmo. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, so I do remember reading an a article quite a while ago about the carrageen and where it's, it's been proven that it's highly inflammatory for your gut lining. So I remember I had a friend who was drinking almond milk and it had that in and I told her about the article. I'm like, I just, that just wouldn't do it, you know? Um, like companies are getting smarter. They're actually labeling it as gum 407 because they know consumers don't have the time to look at it. So rather than labeling it as carrageen and it's now gum 407. So, so everyone, gum 407, <laughs> don't, don't buy it. <laughs> So then tell me, what's been one of the most rewarding things that you've got out of running the business? Travel. Um, I absolutely love travel and obviously living in London, not being able to move back permanently, having the opportunity to visit some of our customers and distributors overseas Mm -hmm. has been really special, um, in particular in Asia, um, never visiting Singapore or Dubai. um, That's been um, a a really enjoyable experience, but also the opportunities that we get when we meet our customers face-to-face. Um, really, really special when we know Elmo makes a difference where I might be having a hard day and I'll get a, a random phone call from a, a customer or we'll meet them at a show and um, they'll it might be a mum that will tell us that her children have lactose intolerance or have an autoimmune condition or a celiac and and how much of a difference it's made to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's really, really rewarding. Totally. I can imagine it would be. It's kind of like, especially when you're putting so much love and effort into this product and then you don't always get to see the people who, who purchase it and you don't often get to, you know, hear their experiences. So I imagine when you do, it's kind of like, oh, 
you know, it's, it's really nice. You kind of, you can see that what you're doing is making an impact. Yeah. And the days where it's a challenge and you don't want to get out of bed and you've got a ton of emails to answer. Sometimes you question what is it that you do and why do you do it? And I think that um, really sort of cements um, the reason why I continue to run Elmo and continue to overcome the challenges because we have so many customers that actually still do care. And despite not being an international conglomerate um, and having and having limited distribution, um, our customers still value what we do. And we constantly see growth on our online platforms and really loyal customers come back and purchase our products. So that's, that's definitely something special. What would you say to people who are, whether it's in the food industry or, you know, any, any industry, they're, they're starting their own business or they've started it and they're facing challenges, what is one thing that you would say to them? to kind of inspire them to keep going, obviously, or not if they wanted to. (laughs) (laughs) Company values, um, the sooner you understand your own personal values and the sooner you understand what your company's values are, start to live and breathe them and start to use them in really difficult situations. So whatever obstacle you might come up with, put them up against or put that problem up against your personal um, and company values and sort of question what is um, a right decision. So we have been in really challenging positions where let's say a distributor of ours um, is making money for us, but we don't believe in some of their ethics or the relationship is aggressive or something that we don't believe is healthy. Health is one of our number one values. We, we decided to cut a relationship and cut an opportunity for us because we didn't believe it aligned with our values. So going back to those values and even hiring staff, I always ask, well, how do you focus on your health? Is health a priority? What does health mean to you? And if an employee or um, a potential um, new employee cannot answer that as a question, then we automatically know that doesn't matter what their resume says, if they don't have an understanding of what health is or how it's important, then we certainly won't prioritise them in that that process. So going back to anyone's problems and challenges, use your company values to an advantage. And if you don't already have company values, um, even if you're a one-man band or a small business, just write some down. You only need two or three, um, four at most, and use them to help guide you in really challenging times. I really like that. And I love how you gave the example of parting ways with a particular opportunity because it didn't stay aligned. Because so often we can say yes to those things. And in my experience, in those moments when I've said yes to something, when in my gut I was kind of like, mm, it doesn't kind of align fully, but it, it, they never work out in your favour. <laughs> Let's put it that way. No, definitely trust your gut. That's probably another takeaway. That gut feeling is always right. <laughs> yes. Yes, absolutely. So our interview is coming to a close. I've got a few signature questions to ask you. If you weren't in this career path and you had your time over, what would you like to attempt? I have a love of design and I still get distracted by pretty pictures on Instagram, um, but um, exploring different 
areas of design, whether it's interior design or looking at industrial design, I think it's an area that I really love and perhaps in future, who's to say that that won't be an area that I'll uh, definitely won't dabble into in future. Awesome. And what do you believe is your greatest asset? My greatest asset is resilience. Uh, I'm sort of gritting my teeth right now and I'm just like, <laughs> oh, that was the first thing that came to mind. Um, I've always been a gentle, soft, humble, sensitive, quiet girl and um, business has really shaped me into something a little bit different. And that definitely has come because of the obstacles and challenges um, that I have faced. And, and I know we all have our challenges in life. Um, we go through pain, we go through suffering in different forms. I definitely have had my fair share of, of that. And I think resilience just keeps me going and keeps me looking forward to the future and moving forward. That's such a good one. It's so needed. And I feel like life will... Being someone that probably relates to being a bit sensitive myself and, you know, probably a bit more soft and there was, you know, there's been aspects in my life, especially when I was younger, you know, where that was put into question and I had to like toughen up really because I think you just think the world's a lovely place and then you get into the real world you're like, no, it doesn't work like that, Monica. So I do resilience, yes, I highly advocate that. I definitely think um, life can smack you down hard sometimes <laughs> and, uh, and um, sometimes when you pick yourself back up, those who've gone through a lot of adversity, um, rest assured that adversity, you can turn that into your most powerful asset or your most powerful tool. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Okay, my final question for you is, there a piece of wisdom that you've been given or that you've acquired through self-experience along the way that you live by today? There's a lot of quotes and um, gems that I take away. I live by the motto, action is character. So mm-hmm. I just like to cut the crap sometimes uh, when it comes to talking and I love to see both um, friends and others just deliver and create um, and take risks. But uh, recently, my I, I've had an executive coach for the last couple of months and um, Emma really gave me a, a great piece of wisdom and that was um, we can make decisions based on love or we can make decisions based on fear. And to just to think about that when we are stuck in really challenging positions um, and we've got problems at hand, to think about the the actions we make and the the choices we make and to think about that, whether that's coming from a place of love or a place of fear. Both are so powerful. I I agree with you and I feel like it ties nicely back into what you were saying about making decisions based on your values because when we're choosing out of love, there's going to be aligned with that. But when we're not, it's coming from that fear space. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me. It was such a pleasure. And I will include all the links to your social handles and your website. And if you love almond milk, then head on over and check out Almo. And if you live in Australia, then, yes, you can go to Woolies. Is it at Coles as well? Um, No, it's uh, in Select Woolworth Store in Victoria. It's in Harris Farm in New South Wales. And for those in regional areas, they can definitely buy online, um, which is a really good, affordable way to get their hands on Elmo. 
Amazing. So no excuses, folks. Grab yourself a bottle of Almo. <laughs> Thank you again. Thanks, Vaughn. Really enjoy the chat.